This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, accurately dividing. That's the thought behind it, the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and if you happen to be a first-time listener, the next hour we'll be taking people's questions and Maybe you've been studying a text of Scripture or you're looking for a biblical application of a text and uh, with questions presented to us here every week via email at tbl, tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net or direct calls. We're happy to try to respond to each one. Again, the local number, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or you can call us toll-free at our 877 exchange, and it's just the call letters WAGP980, what's ever easiest for you to memorize. All right, Rick, um, we've had a lot of questions come in, more than we can probably answer time-wise, but we'll go ahead and get started. Indeed, Pastor. We had one call come in at the end of the program last week, so we'll pick up with that one first. Teresa wanted to know, she says, I am an online follower and would like to know what exactly happens when a person becomes a believer and then gets baptized. I'm assuming maybe Teresa is watching our series right now called Basic Discipleship. And for the last uh, four Wednesdays, we've been dealing with the uh, third handout of 21 handouts in the course And we're dealing with the subject of baptism. So it's one of the extensive handouts that take four or five weeks to cover. And we'll summarize it, God willing, this Wednesday night and uh, bring it to a conclusion. But we began to crack the door last week on uh, paleo-baptism versus credo-baptism, infant baptism versus post-conversion baptism. Uh, We'll explore that a little bit deeper this uh, coming Wednesday, Lord willing. But again, um, credo-baptism or post-conversion baptism is an act of obedience. So, of course, uh, the Scripture teaches believe and then be baptized. Uh, Man reversed it at one point where they began to baptize little infants, largely under the leadership of Augustine, and then it became uh, somewhat of a concrete practice uh, as the Roman Catholic Church started around 575 A.D., Uh, But post-conversion baptism was clearly the practice of the early church. Since that period of time, some evangelicals baptize infants. Uh, If you were to take it from a purely majority point of view, uh, people who are Christianized, probably infant baptism is winning out. But if you were to take it from an evangelical point of view, and I'm cautious now even to use the word evangelical, uh, it's it's such a fluid term Uh, 52% of evangelicals, according to a recent survey done by Lifeway Books, says that Jesus was created. 54% say that a relationship with another person to whom you're not married, as long as it's mutual, is fine. Um, So uh, a sexual relationship. So obviously the term has become very, very fluid. 
but when I use the term evangelical, I'm referring to a biblically-based Christian. And obviously, most Christians today are far away from the Scriptures and know very little of God's Word, and so they're easily swayed. And then there are many who are Christianized who don't even believe in the authority of God's Word. So with that said, biblical Christianity has always practiced post-conversion baptism, and that represents a majority. So in the traditional definition of the term evangelical, about 90% of born-again believers uh, practice what's called post-conversion baptism, according to the U.S. Center for World Missions. And they have pretty decent uh, stats on uh, missiology. Um, with that said, what happens? Well, nothing magical like you're going to get some, you know, chill down your spine or the Holy Spirit's going to enter you, though some have falsely taught that. And so one of the um, uh, things that we've explored here on Wednesday night is what's called baptismal regeneration, that you're regenerated or born again when you're baptized. That's not true. That's, uh, that's really heretical. It makes baptism part of the plan of salvation. But the Bible does teach that you obey Christ by being baptized. And so you receive the joy of obedience. And in one sense, it's really a mark of um, that your salvation is, is real. And again, I, I qualified that statement that I just made on Wednesday nights because we have, you know, brothers in Christ. In fact, it's one of the uh, questions that we will address this coming Wednesday who practice infant baptism. Uh, but generally speaking, in the first century, Jesus could make a statement like this. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who is disbelieved shall be condemned. How can he make such a statement? Well, he does not say he who is disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned. That would make baptism part of the plan of salvation. But he does say he who is believed and maybe in modern paraphrase and has made a public confession of, fa- of his faith. Because Jesus said, if a man won't confess me before men, he'll not confess them before his Father who's in heaven. In other words, a true mark of conversion is a confession of faith. And ultimately, the confession of faith in the New Testament was believer's baptism. And that's why Jesus can say, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Again, there are some good Presbyterian brothers and others who I, I don't think see it. They have a different view. I don't think they're unbelievers. Um, but again, someone's right, someone's wrong. So should you be baptized? Yes, it's an act of obedience, part of the Great Commission. I go, therefore, make converts. The order is clear, make disciples. And of course, the word disciple in that context is in reference to a genuine believer, baptizing them, teaching them. So as we go, we're to make converts, how? Through the preaching of the gospel. And we are calling new believers to baptism. So to call, not to call a new believer to baptism is really to uh, diminish the command of Christ in the great commission that he gave to his people. Great question. I hope that helps. Uh, you might want to stay with us this Wednesday night where we do a huge summary of the entire handout on baptism. All right. Very good. We had an anonymous caller a minute ago from Savannah. And they uh, asked the following question. They said, uh, uh, her pastor has been doing a series on spiritual gifts. And this past Sunday, he talked about the gift of speaking in tongues. He explained what it was, then went on to give examples of people he knew that do this, like at conferences, etc. And said he recently did it as well, but called it his prayer language. He never said he was speaking in tongues, but said it's his prayer language. And the others that he was referring to 
did the as well. He calls it prayer language. After he explained what speaking in tongues was, which I felt he explained accurately according to the Bible, but he left that and started talking about different people's prayer language and his prayer language to God. It sounded to her that he was trying to saying that these people at conferences and different ones he knew of and himself were talking in tongues, but he never actually said that. That's what he meant, though. He called it talking in their prayer language. This woman looked up what John MacArthur said about speaking in tongues and what uh, her preacher was doing sounded like the charismatic movement that MacArthur described. And this is scary to her and seems dangerous. Her father always told her as a child that speaking in tongues is no more. It's no longer used today. This gift ended, and I, uh, the woman says she's heard you say before on the radio that the uh, same thing is ended for today. According to the Bible, when tongues was used, it was never a prayer language. It was speaking a foreign language that they'd never known before, and someone interpreted it. Would you please explain actually what speaking in tongues is and explain from the Bible that it's no longer used today? Uh, she wanted to know, wanted you to know that her pastor is a godly man and a prayerful man, and she really does believe in his genuine faith. But um, what do you do about this? Well, it, it's a good question, and speaking in tongues when— it came to the forefront of uh, Bible-believing Christianity in the 1960s. Um, technically, there's a distinction between a Pentecostal and a Charismatic. Pentecostalism had its rebirth right at the turn of the century in the early 1900s um, and from a movement that took place in Los Angeles, a number of the traditional Pentecostal uh, organizations were, were birthed, like the Assemblies of God and Church of God and Prophecy and Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and so on. Um, their position has changed through the centuries, I say through the decades. Uh, initially, uh, Pentecostals uh, taught that you were uh, giving the genuine proof that you were saved when you spoke in tongues. In fact, they argued that unless you spoke in tongues, you were not saved. They have since modified that, but as you do a history of what they've actually taught, they keep changing their position. And the reason they're changing their position is because Christians have become more schooled and educated on some of these issues. But speaking in tongues was a miracle ability to speak a real language that you did not prior know. Uh, There's only one example of speaking in tongues in terms of giving an explanation of what was happening, and that was in Acts 2. And he uses the word glossolalia, which refers to real languages, and he uses the uh, Greek word dialectos that refers to a dialect within a language. And so I speak English, but a miracle would be that I could speak fluent Chinese, not just a few phrases that I know, but fluent Chinese, and not only Chinese, maybe a particular dialect, because there's many dialects of Chinese, like Mandarin, say. That would be the miracle, and that's what happened. What's happening today is no different than what happens in Kundalini Hinduism. If you go to India, and I've only been there twice, but uh, there are Hindus who laugh uncontrollably, who are, quote-unquote, slain in the spirit, as you see uh, Kenneth Copeland and others doing Uh, They are speaking in tongues, and it sounds identical. It's no different uh, to what's happening in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. The charismatic movement was birthed in the 1960s, and that was a movement that took place within traditional 
denominations. And so, say, the Episcopal Church had a movement uh, where they began to speak in tongues. Uh, There were even some Baptists who, quote-unquote, began to speak in tongues. But what they're doing is they're depreciating the miraculous aspect of what took place in the New Testament. And again, you know, I've met many, many, many people in my um, years of ministry. I've been in the ministry since 1978 who have, quote-unquote, spoken in tongues, and they didn't even know the plan of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So if spiritual gifts are only given to people who are born again, and that's the case, then whatever they're doing, it's clearly not from God. So you have to immediately admit that there's a lot of fraudulent things out there. Um, And again, in fairness to, I I don't know who your pastor is or or anything about him, this caller who's uh, called in this question, but what some have done, because they can't get around passages like Acts 2, though some will try to use 1 Corinthians 13, and they'll say, well, it's not a real human language, it's an um, angelic language, and Paul is simply using hyperbole there. That's not what he meant. If I sp- speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging s- cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. Look, um, there's no more a gift of uh, speaking in an angelic tongue than there is someone who has uh, all knowledge. Only God is omniscient. He's using hyperbole to draw home his point. But some would say, well, I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm speaking in a private language. There's no such distinction found anywhere in the New Testament. That's just made up. That's convenient. It's made up. It's not true. Um, I've given this a lot of study and thought. I did my doctoral dissertation on it, and I teach a course on spiritual gifts. And if you listen to the course on spiritual gifts, if you just want to study section six of the course, which is called Sign Gifts in the New Testament, I walk through very, very, very carefully all the critical verses that are involved and you can think this through for yourself. And if you have any trouble uh, finding that material, call Search the Scriptures, and uh, they'll be happy to send you a mechanical uh, handout via email. Any advice for this woman who loves her preacher? All the people in the congregation love this preacher. She's convinced of his genuine faith. Uh, Should she approach him about it? Well, sure. You know, uh, if she has a concern, she should... Uh, ask him, you know, why have you come to this conclusion? This seems rather new. It potentially may lead in a different direction. This is usually what happens. It starts very subtly. The next thing you know, you're doing healing services. The next thing you know, people are being slain in the Spirit, and it just really gets out of hand. And it puts preeminence on experience rather than the teaching and exposition of the Word which is where the pastor is supposed to put his emphasis. Yeah, she's concerned because this Sunday he's going to be talking about prophecy. I see. Well, again, you know, that would be interesting. Does he see an open canon where, you know, God like gives a word of prophecy or does he define prophecy in terms of simply expounding what God has already revealed? So if you have an open canon where God can speak directly to you, this is very, very dangerous and Uh, For me, if he goes in that direction, I wouldn't stay in the church. I wouldn't want to be there uh, because that's that's a whole different 
uh, view, and you might want to listen to my next to the last sermon in the Revelation series. I know they're airing it now on radio, and they're just in chapter 14, but if you wanted to fast forward uh, in that series, just go to searchthescriptures.org and um, is it available, the whole Revelation series online? So yes, Yeah, so go to the next to last uh, message, and I deal with this open canon issue and how dangerous it is, whether it's through the gift of prophecy or Sarah Young or Beth Moore or others like them that are receiving these direct messages from God. All right, we've got a live caller standing by from Savannah. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Um I've got a question. You know, I, I studied and heard your eternal, the base of the back to the base, eternal security teaching and all that. And I also you never know, heard that this program they have on Don, Donnie Swagger, his mom, you know, Francis and Friends program. You know, I, I emailed him several times about, you know, about the eternal security. They believe in eternal security, but they say it's conditional. But then they are mentioned about, you know, Christ died for a past, present, future sin. They agree with that. But then they say, well, that, that there's no more sacrifice more just for to be a, to be uh, presented before God because Christ would have died for once for all, but they say like they used to prodigal son that he said that he was once dead and now he's alive. So so basically, if a person sins, you know you're dead, and then and then like like the prodigal son, he had to repent in order to be saved again. Basically, the same because if he would have died in his condition, would have been lost. So if that was well, when that verse. When Jesus Christ, uh, what's that parable? What's that no, still in the Old Covenant? Or like the Old Testament Covenant, like the Old Testament Covenant, King David's life and all that. You know, they obviously since he committed, people have died in his condition. King David would have been lost. Or, or how that's applied compared to the New Covenant. If a believer sins, if he doesn't repent from his sin, then will he be lost? That's, that's what they believe, that the person must repent from his sin. But I understand is repentance just restores your fellowship. Repentance doesn't prevent you from losing your salvation; it just restores your, your salvation. Doesn't restore your salvation, but restores your fellowship. So, what can you clarify that all this for? Sure. Me? No, I appreciate the question. So, um, clearly, the New Testament makes a distinction between our relationship with God, which is eternal, and our fellowship with God, which is moment by moment. Uh, this group, whoever they are, obviously does not believe in the doctrine of eternal security because they think there is something that you can do to sever that relationship, namely dying with unconfessed sin in your soul. Uh, Understand, too, that God unfolds progressively sin in the believer's life. Um, There's a lot of things when we enter into an eternal relationship with God that we aren't aware of, and that's what the whole sanctification process is like, where God is honing us and shaping us and refining us in that process of becoming more and more like Christ. And that's a lifelong process. But again, our fellowship is a moment-by-moment thing. And Christ illustrated this in John 13 when he washed the feet of the disciples. And if you remember when he came to Peter, Peter said, Lord, never shall you wash me. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. And so Peter then responded, well, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, no, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who is betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so the Lord is giving an interplay here, not just on 
uh, the need to be servants, but how we are to serve. And he said to them plainly that there are some things that I'm going to do tonight that you do not realize tonight, but you will understand later on hereafter. And that was primarily this lesson on cleansing. So Judas obviously was not clean because he had never had salvation's bath. And so Jesus says to Peter, look, you don't need to be bathed again. You only need to have your feet cleaned. Why? Because once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. You um, pick up some sin. You do some acts of disobedience. And so when John speaks of confession in 1 John, he says that we have fellowship with the Lord and and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And I'm writing these things so that your joy can be made complete. And he reminds us of our need to confess sin, not to be saved again, but in order to maintain that closeness, in order to serve the Lord properly, because you can't serve the Lord with dirty feet. That is, you can't serve him with known. And I underscore here the word known because there's a progressive dimension to uh, growing up in Christ, and it's lifelong, and God will show us things our entire life that he wants to refine. And this is why we need not to be little Pharisees and judgmental over especially new believers in the church who may bring all kinds of baggage with them that they just aren't aware of. They haven't given it any thought. So someone's been saved a week and they're not tithing. Does that mean they're living in sin? They may not even know what the word tithe means. So there's a progressive dimension to sanctification. But the concept of dying with an unconfessed sin in your soul you will see in either Pentecostalism or Roman Catholicism. And both are erroneous in this realm. Uh, Roman Catholicism says that if you die with a mortal sin on your soul, you can be damned. Um, And, of course, one of the rites that they, uh, one of the seven sacraments is the rite of, you know, final um, unction, so to speak, where the priest comes and offers you an opportunity for confession. But that, that, that's just, you know, weak doctrine, and it's weak from some of our Pentecostal brethren who have taught the same. So using that example that this listener uh, cited from another preacher who used the parable of the lost son yeah, right. and the last verse that says, uh, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, uh, this preacher had said the son had lost his salvation, but now was once again saved. No, what, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, so I don't think so. You know, I don't know anyone who's ever taught that, uh, that the prodigal is in reference to someone who was saved and they've just walked away from the Lord. Uh, and maybe some popular books that have been given that title over the years have led that impression, but that has nothing to do with Luke chapter 15 and the text of really the two lost sons, and but one went in outward open rebellion against God, and he came to a reckoning and realization of his need to repent and understand uh, Luke 15 can't be separated from the other parables that Jesus tells in this chapter because he, he really tells three parables, the parables uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. In each parable, 
fits together with the same thing theme that you know something was lost and now has been found and um the person who repents there's more joy in heaven than over 99 persons who need no such repentance and each parable really is a different picture one of god the son one of god the spirit and one of god the father in their heart towards lost people but it has nothing to do with someone who is saved and then you know, lost their salvation through some act of rebellion or some lifestyle of rebellion. Okay. I'm not looking at the Greek interpretation of the, or the Greek wording, but, you know, there is a uh, Jewish uh, custom, I guess, that you can say to someone, you are dead to me. Right. And then the other thing that I got from that verse was that, you know, this son just lost his way and yeah. now had found his way back in terms right. of being off of his moral track. Yeah, so um, his brother, so to speak, seemed pretty self-righteous, and maybe he was equally lost, but he did not go into this outward rebellion. But listen, the Pharisees uh, didn't outwardly uh, commit adultery, but they committed adultery of the heart, and there were all kinds of practices, issues of the heart that Jesus addresses, which is one of the functions of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it is said, but I say to you, and he says that over and over and over again, because you can look good outwardly and inwardly have huge deficits in your spiritual life. Um, but again, he is the focus of the parable is on this lost son, just like the focus on the lost coin and the lost sheep and the theme in each is the same, that unless you change your mind and comes, come to grips with your need for salvation, you likewise will perish. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Paul from Portland, Oregon writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. You have no idea how much you're helping pastors here in our state. However, some of us are finding opposition to expository preaching and long sermons. Any help? Well, uh, it's a pastor's job to preach the Bible expositionally. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a pastor, you know, sometimes people in their mind, they think of expositional preaching of going through an entire book of the Bible. That's one aspect of expositional preaching. But you can take just a, a paragraph of Scripture and preach it expositionally. Uh, maybe you're doing a sermon on marriage, or maybe you're doing a series like I just finished on Elijah the prophet, where you take a text of Scripture and you expound it verse by verse by verse in its historical grammatical context. And that is what changes lives. And sadly, you know, that's been replaced largely through a paradigm that both um, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels presented to the church over 30 years ago where the church became more of um, a morning service that was only to reach the lost. And the rationale was, if we're going to reach the lost, we need to make the church palatable to the lost. So both of these men, supposedly independently of each other, at least that's the testimony that they give, and they certainly lived in different states, went door-to-door and asked people who didn't go to church what you would like to see in a church service. And that's how they constructed their church services. Well, you don't ask, you know, what does the world want in a church service? You ask, what does God want in a church service? 
And what was totally ignored was the pastoral epistles. If those guys had just maybe done a series themselves on First and Second Timothy and Titus, they would have never come to the conclusion that they've come to. And then you've got guys like Tim Keller who, you know, about a year or so ago at the Revoice Conference said that expository preaching doesn't really change lives and we need to be more artsy. And, of course, he's addressing so-called homosexual Christians, which is an oxymoron. And uh, Sam Alberry was leading the conference, and uh, it was held at a major PCA church, and uh, and Tim Keller, who, you know, has come to the conclusion that it's okay to be gay as long as you don't act out on it, as long as you are celibate. You can you can even embrace, as Alberry says on his website, homosexual feelings towards someone of the same sex as long as you don't physically act out on it. That's just heresy. It's ridiculous. And what Tim Keller said was really antithetical to the Word of God. Look, I, I never used his book in our church on so-called, you know, reason for God because it was erroneous in the early chapters where it endorsed theistic evolution as an alternative view that needs to be embraced and understood by believers. It's not an alternative view. It fundamentally goes against what Jesus taught, what the apostles affirmed, and clearly the simple reading of Genesis. And so when you undermine the early chapters of Genesis and say you can embrace views like theistic evolution, you're going against the heart of God's Word. So that was enough of a red flag, but now we're really seeing where he is at. And it's very, very sad, and God only knows if he's ever been converted. I sure hope so, but what he's teaching is gross error, and uh, and it's very, very sad. that The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is not accomplished through artsy kinds of things, where, again, he poo-pooed on... Um, expository preaching. He says pastors need to be more creative. Pastors don't need to be creative. They need to be obedient. They just need to preach the word. That's what God has called us to do. Just read First and Second Timothy, and that's what is um, being called and asked of Timothy to guard the deposit, to be loyal to the truth, the faith that had been delivered to him, and to preach it and to expound healthy doctrine. But that's being ignored in our day, and, and that's why there's so much chaos in the church and why there's so much opinion, and you speak on a simple subject of what God says, and people call you hateful and this and that. And some lady wrote me, and I threw it in the wastebasket, how hateful I was for calling out some error. Uh, I just came in the mail over the weekend. I thought, she knows nothing. It's really sad, but that's how ignorant— um, the churches today, that if you protect your flock and you warn them against Mormons, say, who are teaching a different gospel, or against someone who is teaching uh, a different moral standard, um, and you give such warnings, now you're being hateful. No, you're not being hateful. You're telling the truth, and you're doing what God has asked you to do as a pastor. Okay, very good. I read an article this morning uh, that was talking about length of sermons, and they said some pastors who are trying to imitate people that they are, um, you know, that they admire, go on and they ramble for an hour and some odd minutes. But yeah. really, um, a mature pastor is is likely going to start out 
with a, a shorter period, but as he grows and matures and is able to deliver content, and remember, pastors have to deliver at multiple levels, the new believer as well as the sure, that's mature right. believer. That's right. Uh, that uh, it's not uncommon to have, you know, lengthy sermons. We, we live in a day where, you know, our priorities are just warped. Some guy will go to a football game and he won't leave his spot, not even to use the bathroom for two hours because he's enraptured in the football game. But then when it comes to preaching God's word, well, that's another thing, you know, you know, 15, 20 minute sermons and you can't feed the flock on that. And, you know, when you study the history and length of sermons, the sermons today are relatively an hour, an hour and 15 minute sermon is far shorter than the one and a half to two hour sermons uh, that were traditionally preached in the early days of this country. But again, it's a sad reflection of men's hearts who've grown cold. But, you know, I would agree, Rick, that, you know, the length of the sermon in and of itself doesn't make it good. What makes it good is that God's word is being taught. That's where the power is. And if a pastor gets up and rambles and he's not teaching the text, I would be bored to death and I couldn't wait to get out. Amen. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, I don't think we've ever uh, gotten a question from this location. Viliami Betty Toronibau from Suva, Fiji wants yeah. to know, how do I assess my spiritual gifts? Well, um, one, get educated on what God says about the spiritual gifts, and there are 20 that are listed in the New Testament. And going back to the first question that came in today about speaking in tongues, there are four that were what we might typically refer to as sign gifts and were unique to the New, Pet- New Testament era, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracle, and healings. Again, God still does miracles, he still heals, but the gift of miracles and healings was a unique first century expression as the church was being founded and as God was authenticating the message with the messenger. And of course, uh, there were aspects of things like speaking in tongues and prophecy where before the canon of Scripture was completed, God made supernatural conduits of his truth where he could speak through a person. And again, you had to test the spirits to see if they were of God and the spirits of a prophet were to be subject to another prophet and so on. So it just wasn't some wholesale acceptance. There were certain parameters that God gave by which you can be discerning. So one, become educated in the gifts and you might want to consider uh, taking the course um, called Spiritual Gifts uh, that I offer through the Institute of Biblical Studies, where we walk through each gift, how it looks, how it functions. Um, we give biblical examples. I also have a Spiritual Gifts assessment that I wrote. Initially, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I didn't have time to write one, and there were a, a number of Spiritual Gifts assessments that were out there, and I used the one conservative one, you know, wasn't testing for whether or not you had the gift of, you know, miracles or whether you had the gift of tongues. And it started with certain um, presuppositions. But eventually I wrote my own because I felt like, um, you know, some of them were just not very well done and a little bit sloppy. And that's not to say there aren't some good ones out there because I'm sure there are. Uh, With that said, a spiritual gifts assessment can be useful to you. If you're a new Christian, it might not initially be telling, 
the illustration I like to use sometimes is that of an infant that you hold and you don't know how God gifted in terms of natural talents this little young man or young girl that you're holding in your arms until they grow. And then you discover whether they're mechanically or musically or whatever bent God has created in them and the what they're inclined to do. The same is true in the spiritual realm. It's not until you grow that your spiritual gift will begin to distinguish itself. But within a couple of years, if you are being fed on a healthy diet, you ought to be able to know and learn your spiritual gifts. Um, certainly it will be obvious not only to you, but to other people. Other people will receive a sense of blessing if you have the gift of serving or the gift of mercy or administration, whatever your spiritual gift is, other people will have a sense that, boy, you are really ministering to me and other people when you serve in this particular realm. And uh, it will certainly bring you a sense of joy, the the word charis, kara, um, the word for gift, for grace, kara, and for joy, kara, uh, those three words, charis, is uh, the the word that God uses for gift, and it's related to the word for grace and the word for joy in the New Testament. So one, they're grace gifts. They're not determined by you. You don't earn them. God sovereignly gives you the gift that he wants you to have, and every Christian has at least one based on texts like 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But there are illustrations in Scripture where a person could have more than one. Um, With that said, no one has them all, and most people only have one, and maybe occasionally you'll meet someone that has two, say, spiritual gifts. Uh, The apostles obviously had many more, as the New Testament affirms, But still, uh, we need each other, we're dependent on each other, and as you serve in your area of giftedness, others will be blessed, and you will have a sense of joy, a sense of fulfillment. God doesn't gift you to do something that you're miserable um, at, or that just you dread doing. No, there'll be a real sense of deep and satisfying joy. So one of the um, sections in the spiritual gift course is on identifying your spiritual gift, and I go through five tests. I just mentioned a couple to get you started. All right, very good. And if this listener would like to uh, take the uh, spiritual gifts uh, course, uh, you can go to searchthescriptures.org and just uh, uh, search for Unwrapping Your Spiritual Gift. That's the name of the series. And if you want to take the test uh, itself, you can just go to searchthescriptures.org slash gifts. And then if you want some extra credit, uh, which will include uh, getting a certificate of the participation in the Institute of Biblical Studies, contact Pastor Jeff Lawson at 877-787-7478, and they will patch you through to him. It's actually a biblical certificate. And what does that mean? Um, it, It means that you've completed a course of study, usually most Bible certificates are a minimum of 30 hours. Uh, I'll give you an example of someone who got a biblical certificate that most of our listeners know. His name is Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll never actually graduated from college. And so uh, to go into a master's program, a prerequisite is that you have an undergraduate degree. And so he went to Dallas Seminary out of the Marine Corps And he went through the same four-year, 120-hour course of study that I went through. 
but because he didn't have the prerequisite, all they could give him was a biblical certificate. Um, but typically it's 30 hours, 35 hours. Our program is 36 hours of study. Um, but it's what is usually minimally required if someone becomes a missionary. So if you go into the mission field, they either want a seminary graduate or a minimum of a Bible certificate, and that's what we're offering people. So we actually had a person who went to Africa and took the uh, STS course. They didn't do all 36 hours because we didn't have them all done, but she did 31 hours of study, and that was all that was needed for her to get accepted into that particular missions agency. All right. John from Alabama writes, you've spoken on it before, but have you seen where Somerville, Massachusetts just passed legislation allowing polyamory? What's next? Where will it all end? Well, you know, uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Polyamory deals, of course, with uh, two or more wives. And so Somerville, Mass., which is just outside of Boston, has made it legal. And, of course, I suspect that with time— this will become a Supreme Court issue. And what can the Supreme Court do but to endorse it? I mean, if you're going to endorse, you know, such perversions as homosexual marriage, then why not endorse polyamory? Uh, You you might as well. Polygamy uh, is something that you will find in Scripture, but God's uh, monogamous plan between one man and one woman is uh, what he has taught. And you have to remember that there are parts of Scripture that are descriptive but aren't prescriptive. And so sometimes God will record things, but he's not necessarily giving an endorsement of those things. And God said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And so I just flipped over to Matthew 19. And there Jesus, of course, is dealing with the subject of divorce and remarriage. And even there, he, again, makes a distinction between something that is descriptive versus prescriptive. And it was because of man's hardness of heart that God tolerated divorce and even regulated it. But he never intended married couples to divorce. That was never his ideal. And God never intended people to have multiple wives. He warned the kings not to, you know, multiply their wives or their houses or their gold. Why? Because they're hearts could easily be drawn away. And, of course, that was the problem that Solomon faced in his life. He ended up having a lot of wives, and, of course, most of those were political marriages, uh, not conjugal relationships, but still, um, God gave a very clear intent. And when you come into the New Testament, when he refers to the marriage relationship in Ephesians, again, he, he uses a singular pronoun, a man shall love not his wives, but his wife, singular. And so the heart of Mormonism was to take some of the descriptive things and make them prescriptive. And, of course, Joseph Smith knew the truth, rejected the truth, ended up believing a lie and propagating a lie through the Book of Mormon. And there are some, quote-unquote, faithful Mormons who still practice polygamy illegally in this country, but it's just a matter of time. Uh, before perversions are uh, basically allowed greater expression. We just saw it last week. Uh, The governor of California um, lowered the age for, you know, homosexual adults to interact with young men. And 14, is that the age, Rick? Yes, sir. Yeah, so, 
you know, it's these kinds of perversions are only going to grow as the nation departs from God. We are under the wrath of God. There is eschatological wrath that we will see during the tribulation. There is eternal wrath that men will know forever in the place of judgment. But there's a current expression of God's wrath that we are seeing in America today, the wrath of God that is being revealed. And Paul underscores it first in heterosexual immorality, then homosexual immorality, then in a depraved, reprobate, upside-down mind that gives itself to all kinds of evil. And that's where America is today. And unless God intervenes and lifts his hands of wrath, and the only thing that could change that would be repentance on part of the American people. But but we have these folks who, you know, want to legalize perversion. So, you know, you've got the Equality Act that if the Democrats get in power, you know, and how someone could vote for a platform that endorses the killing of little babies right up until the day before they're born is beyond me. Don't tell me that you're exercising your conscience. If you think that way, you've got a twisted, seared, callous, maybe even an evil conscience. Um, And then, you know, for the Equality Act to be passed, what that will mean for me as a pastor, if it becomes law, is if someone comes into my office and I counsel them with what they would define as reparative um, behavior, you know, someone is homosexual and I'm explaining to them as a new Christian or even as an unbeliever, how God can change them and free them from this lifestyle. If I teach that, I will be breaking the law. That's the Equality Act if it's passed. Uh, They've been wanting to pass it since Hillary Clinton was a senator for New York, but they've never had enough votes. But give the country enough time, we're going to see persecution amongst believers express itself on levels that we've never imagined. All right. Very good. Uh, Last week, we uh, didn't have enough time to answer this listener's question, but he wrote or actually dictated in Acts 8.1, around when does this exactly take place? And if the disciples and believers were scattered, why weren't the apostles? Well, it's a good question. Um, the, The book of Acts is one of the few books in the Bible where within Acts itself, Uh, God gives the outline. So Jesus said there on top of the Mount of Olives, it's not for you to know the times and the epics uh, regarding the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. He doesn't deny that, by the way. He doesn't say, well, there's no future kingdom for Israel. They said, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And the reason they ask that question is because Jesus had just given a promise about the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is, in a supernatural, broad-based way is associated in the Old Testament with the coming millennial reign of the Messiah. Uh, And so it's really a good question they're asking. And he says, it's not for you to know the times of the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So what we find here is how the church unfolded. First, they are his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, that's 8 through 13. And then the remotest part, not parts, as some translations render it, but it's part, singular, because God sees not just the whole world, he sees the individual pieces. And that's an important distinction that some translations miss because they're trying to make it more readable. 
Um, just like Christ died for the whole world, but he died for each one of us. And the Bible makes that distinction as well. So you ask, when did it happen? It happened two years into the church because Acts 1 through 7 covers the first two years of church history. The second half of your question is, uh, why did the apostles remain? It says in 8.1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, him who, him Stephen, to death. So Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, later became, of course, the Apostle Paul, uh, was giving leadership to the persecution of Stephen, this preaching deacon. And on that day, the day Stephen died, this text says a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There's fulfilled prophecy, just as Jesus said in Acts 1-8, except the apostles. And so um, some would ask, well, why were the apostles not spread out? Uh, one, one argument, I think it was F.F. F. Bruce uh, that made that, he said, well, the, the primary focus of this persecution were Greek-speaking Jews. Um, that's possible, um, but I, I, I don't think so. I think the apostles were stalwarts. Uh, they recognized that the mother church, the birthplace of the church was Jerusalem, they knew that there would be people who would be unable to leave. But on top of that, they also knew that there were Jewish people that still needed to be evangelized. So the next verse says, some devout men buried Stephen. The church at large didn't because the church was scattered through Judea and Samaria, but some devout men. And so the term devout, <coughs> excuse me, devout men as used by Luke is used to describe like in Acts 2 or in the Gospel of Luke, people who are God-revering Jews but not necessarily converted. And so I think today there are devout Orthodox people when I go to Jerusalem, and I think those are the Jews who will probably become a part of the 144,000 and those who are converted such that all Israel will be saved, whereas the non-devout Jews will no doubt perish during the tribulation period because Zechariah the prophet speaks of two-thirds of the Jewish people dying during that seven-year period. But devout men were these practicing Jews, like Luke 2, Acts 2 describes, who were looking for the Messiah. No doubt the apostles wanted to stay and continue their evangelistic efforts. So this was not some cowardly thing. This was, I heard one preacher say, well, this was a cowardly thing, and and they should have been, you know, they should have went into Judea and Samaria. No, they're giving overall direction to the whole church. And you find uh, the, the church growing and established again in Jerusalem, such that when Paul comes back from different missionary journeys and Peter and Acts 10 and so forth, that church is growing and flourishing. And beyond the apostles, there's elders who are actually there. So um, what they did was very noble, very risky, but uh, they were men of God who were indestructible until God chose to take them. In Acts 12, you, you meet one of these dear brothers, James, who ends up being beheaded for staying in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, one of my questions, Lord, why did, why did you keep Peter and, and let James go? Known only to God, we'll, we'll have a lot of questions like that answered, I'm sure, in heaven. But these guys did so at great cost and persecution, and much of sure, I'm sure that hasn't even been recorded in Scripture. Okay, uh, we have been live streaming the Wednesday evening, as well as the Sunday morning services of Community Bible Church, and we got a lot of people online, and Bill from Stevens City, Virginia, 
asked this question on the chat uh, last week when you were talking about baptism. How did uh, Roman Catholic faith begin the widespread practice of baptizing infants, even to this day? Well, um, a lot of seeds for Roman Catholicism was planted by Augustine. And he's an interesting fellow, Augustine of Hippo. You know, Protestants claim him, some do, and some Catholics claim him. Um, Augustine, interestingly, was very much opposed to Israel and the Jewish people. Some would just call him a flat-out anti-Semite. I don't know. I've read things by him that were certainly anti-Semitic in nature, but his theology became the basis for the founding of the Roman Catholic Church that where you have uh, Gregory, Pope Gregory, he's the bishop of, of Rome, and he becomes the first official pope in 575. Now, if you go to um, Israel today and some of the Catholic sites, uh, they'll show you a chart of all the popes beginning with Peter. Uh, but really, Catholicism did not start until about 575. But it was Augustine who made popular the practice of infant baptism. Now, there are a number of writers and late church fathers who make statements about children, and some folks read into those statements and assume that they're giving endorsement to infant baptism. But it's really not until the early 400s that you begin to see uh, infant baptism catching. And one of the rationales was that so many of these children died, the infant mortality rate was high, and so they wanted to make sure the children were covered. Some argued, as some of our Presbyterian brothers argue today, that the parallel would be between circumcision and baptism, just as the first generation of adult men were circumcised, and later then God gave a command For infants on the eighth day, they make the same parallel with baptism. But there is no such command in Scripture as there is on circumcision. Not to mention circumcision was for boys only. Baptism is uh, for men and women alike. Circumcision were for Jews and proselytes. Baptism is for the whole church, Gentile and Jew alike. So anyway, Augustine, I would say, most would agree with me on this, was really the primary source for the widespread belief in infant baptism. It was redefined by some of the Protestant reformers, and uh, a different spin was put on it, but some of them bought into it, but not all of them. And throughout the ages, there were the Wallisons and the Anabaptists and others who never practiced infant baptism because God always had his true church that was faithful to his inspired and inerrant word. We're out of time, but thanks for being with us today. Lord willing, we'll be back on another Tuesday soon.